Most of what we think of as healthcare interactions occur between a clinician and a patient, but research has shown that interventions involving friends, family, and peers can help patients make healthy decisions and support their adherence to treatment plans. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Ash, Executive Director of the Center for Healthcare Innovation at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Ash has co-authored a perspective article about leveraging the power of social ties to improve health. Dr. Ash, you write in your article that doctors and healthcare organizations have generally not made the most of existing relationships in their patients' lives to promote health. So what kinds of patients would be most likely to benefit from interventions based on social engagement? Yeah, so it's an interesting setup we have here, right? Most of our engagements with patients, whether it's from a physician's perspective or a hospital perspective, are really based around an office visit or an inpatient setting. And yet, if you think about even our most chronically ill patients, they might spend only a couple of hours a year in one of those settings, but they spend 5,000 hours a year, 5,000 waking hours a year doing everything else. That's sort of what we call the 5,000 hours problem because it's during those 5,000 waking hours every year that many of the determinants of their health outcomes take shape, what they eat, whether they exercise, whether they take their medication. And so the possibilities for engaging with patients during those 5,000 hours are enormous, right? You can imagine how they might tremendously move the needle in improving healthcare outcomes, but we haven't really done that. So I think about medication adherence, I think about fitness, I think about diet. Anything in which the patient isn't right in front of you is potentially amenable to those areas. And we typically think of clinicians engaged in healthcare, but clinicians are not with patients during those 5,000 hours. So to take an example, strategies involving external support and reciprocity have helped people with diabetes to control their blood sugar. Why does peer intervention work particularly well for those patients? What is it about diabetes and blood sugar? Well, diabetes is a challenging illness to manage because it's become such a part of your life. One's approach to diabetes requires management of medications, diet, fitness. It has to become a way of life. And although doctors would like to influence health behavior, the truth is that your social support, the people who are around you while you're living your life, are already there, already engaged with you, and really have some established trust relationships with you already. And so for a condition like diabetes, which has to be really part of the fabric of your life, doesn't have to control your life, but you have to recognize that you have diabetes pretty much all the time, I could imagine that being a perfect situation for using social support as one of the tools to help you. And of course, plenty of patients with diabetes already do that naturally, right? They engage their family members or their friends and people know when they're testing their blood sugar or tell them to watch out for eating a certain kind of food or something like that. So that already happens organically. But what I think is different is that we haven't really thought about strategies in which hospitals or doctors or other clinicians actually try to make sure that those social interactions happen for their patients. Another kind of intervention you talk about in your article uses team-based competitions to increase social accountability. So what do you see as the ideal setting for that kind of intervention? Is it a health care organization doing it for its patients? Is it an employer doing it for its employees? I can see all of those things happening, whether it's a healthcare organization or an employer or even an insurer. What I think is interesting about that is that they've been demonstrated to work, right? So you can actually get people, for example, to walk more by creating competitions. And we don't often think about doing things like that in healthcare. I think one of the main barriers is a, frankly, appropriate but somewhat conventional view that healthcare has to be so private. So the idea of a team-based competition for your health 
means you've immediately leaped over the idea that healthcare is a very private and individualistic concept. And there are plenty of reasons for wanting to protect privacy because sometimes privacy is very important. But in a lot of cases, people are quite willing to share information about their health and therefore quite willing to engage in the kinds of public accountability activities that are often the highlight of team-based competition and collaboration. So I think the really important point there is how can we see past our concern about privacy? Not that privacy is not important. It's just that privacy isn't always so important. And can we develop mechanisms to make healthcare more social, more team-based, frankly, more fun? So weight loss is an area where social interventions have been around for a long time and there's some evidence. Has it been shown that weight loss programs that promote social engagement are more effective than those that don't? There's definitely literature that suggests that social engagement works in weight loss programs. The problem in general with weight loss programs is that it's hard to sustain weight loss. And so the social programs often have an edge over the individual programs, in part because eating is very, very social. There's this great example of a couple who collectively lost something like 500 pounds. They were very, very overweight. And frankly, one of the only ways they saw to be able to do this was to change the friends who they ate with. So it used to be that their social activities with their friends involved a bunch of eating and often eating that was inappropriate for someone wanting to lose weight. And so they ended up having to develop new friends and new social networks so that those social networks would direct them in the direction they wanted to go. I think that's a great anecdote that very much reveals the more generally known information, which is that people are substantially influenced by what others do around them and are also substantially interested in making sure that others around them think highly of them. So the more we can put activities out into the open where they're observable by others, probably the more we are able to influence behavior in a sustained way. What about patients who lack support from friends and family members who, in fact, may already be facing the steepest odds to health? Are there ways to bring social engagement to them? I think so. I think there is considerable literature that suggests that the existence of social support is a great prognostic factor in people's health. But up until recently, we would sort of think of it as you either had that social support or you didn't. And so the real question about social support is, is there a way to prescribe it to people in the way we can prescribe a medication? You can't really write a prescription for, you know, hang out more with friends. Often the people who have the most challenging health conditions are socially isolated in a lot of ways. But there is evidence that you can create social networks for people. A great study done by my colleague Judith Long, which demonstrated that you could pair people up. In this case, it was patients who had very hard-to-control diabetes, and they were paired with a peer mentor, someone they didn't know previously. And the peer mentor was someone who also had had hard-to-control diabetes, but had managed to tame that control, managed to tame their diabetes. And all they had to do was talk on the telephone once a week. So that's really prescribing social support. And what she and her colleagues found was a over one-point decline, one percentage point decline in hemoglobin A1C in that group, which is a phenomenal effect and was far larger than what was seen with financial incentives or uh, control. So I think that's a very powerful example of effectively prescribing social support to someone who might not have had it otherwise. You also suggest in your article that hospitals, insurers, disease-specific advocacy organizations sponsor adherence contests or create platforms that can create peer support networks. Are any organizations doing that now? And if so, how are they succeeding? I think that a lot of hospitals and organizations do set up support groups, which I would consider to be along the pathway towards that. So if you set up a platform for people, let's say, with a particular disease to engage with each other, and in fact, often 
they find themselves because they're sitting alongside each other in waiting rooms in highly specialized clinics. So some of those platforms exist somewhat organically. But what I'd like to see and haven't yet seen are organizations that explicitly develop platforms and create competitions and collaborations that are sort of fun and engaging and are meant to strategically use what we already know about social interaction to advance a goal. And I think we're really on the precipice of that. And I'm really excited about the idea of employers, insurers, providers, maybe disease-based organizations to think about establishing platforms that would promote those kinds of healthy competitions. Finally, what can individual physicians do to encourage their patients to leverage their own relationships with friends and family to improve their health? I think there are lots of ways of doing that. I'll use an example of myself. So I take a statin to keep my cholesterol down. And I'm actually very good at my medication adherence. I really can't remember missing a dose. So every night as I'm getting ready for bed, I'm brushing my teeth and I'm washing my face and I take my statin and it's just part of my routine. Now, no one sees me take my statin, not because it's so secret. Actually, I just told you and all the listeners that I take a statin, but that's because no one sees me brushing my teeth either. It's not private because I'm secretive about it. It's sort of private by default. And there's an enormous amount of healthcare that is private by default. You can imagine though that if I was having trouble taking my statin or trouble remembering that, Maybe I should be advised to move my pill bottle into the kitchen where someone in my family might see me taking my statin or not taking my statin, or maybe even moving it to the workplace, as long as it's not something that's too sensitive to you. And that might be a trick. How do we make our activities more observable? We all know that we're on our best behavior when we're being observed. That's one of the reasons we like teaching hospitals. The doctors always feel like they're going to be delivering better care when they have students or others around them watching them. They're always going to be at the top of their game. And I think we're always at the top of our game when we know that people are watching us because we want to impress them. We don't want to be doing anything bad. And we all want to be better at taking our medications. So I could see that making certain activities, as long as they're not things that are uncomfortable to share, a little bit more public, that's probably within reach of lots of patients. And it's the kind of advice that lots of doctors could give to their patients. Thank you, Dr. Ash.